Good evening, everyone, and wherever you are, <coughs> pray that this time is a sacred and holy time. You realize that wherever you are, whether you are seated here in this building or whether you are at home watching on your computer, you are on holy ground. Holy ground. I turned it on. It's holy because the Lord is there. It is holy because the Lord is there. Can you guys hear me okay? Can you guys hear me okay up there? Yeah. All right. All right. Um, I have a video clip I want to show you that kind of shows you where my head is at most of the time. for you and uh, I wonder how many of you can identify with it Isabel especially you you're gonna like this this is gonna rock all right you guys got it ready to go we think so all right let's hear it playing together for about five years now and uh, most of it, all of us have been Christians for longer than that and the the thing that that occurs to me, and, and Keith Ritter from, has been out in, in, in China and around saying that the universal message is that Jesus Christ is coming and coming soon. And we believe that with all our hearts. And if you've come here with, your, with a friend, maybe somebody tricked you in to coming. <laughs> then just stop for a second and consider what Jesus Christ did for you, that he came, lived, died, rose again. And he said, I'm going to go prepare a place. And man, he whipped this place together in about six days, and then he took a rest. And I drive up through the redwoods, you know, and we look around, and we go, wow, man, God made this. And it's really neat. And we drive up through Canada and watch the Canadian Rockies, you know, go, man, God is powerful. And in the first chapter, first verse of John, it says, nothing was made without Jesus. And he said, I'm going to go work on a place for you and prepare it for you and get it ready. And you know, Jesus was never slothful about anything. So if he whipped this place together in six days, he's been working on that baby just about 2,000 years. It ought to be just about done. <laughs> and I'm ready to... Go see it. I know one thing, a couple of things about heaven. I know there isn't one person who's going to be there that doesn't want to be there. <laughs> and no one's going to be disappointed. We're not going to be sitting on any dumb clouds. We'll just be gone. Praise the Lord. So we'd like to do a song pertaining to that theme called Get Ready. Oh, <laughs> 
thing about the music of the 70s, you know, you had these four-hour guitar solos and jam sessions going on. This is back in 1976, 77, that this all came out. Um, I was fresh out of high school, and I was fresh into a troubled relationship. And on Easter morning, I went out to Riverside Airport, where Greg Laurie was giving a message in a sunrise service, and it was the Sweet Comfort Band that was playing live. And they played that song, and that took a troubled soul and made him remember that this is not all there is, that there is a hope and a future. And like, like the bass player said, He's been working on that place for 2,000 years, so it ought to be something, you know? This letter that we're ready, ready to get into is in the book of Thessalonians, and it's all about the second coming of Christ. So if you'll open your Bibles to the book or the first letter to the Thessalonians, and we're going to have an introductory message to this this book or this letter. And the key theme is what you heard in that song. The coming of Christ for the church. The coming of Christ. Now, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And let's look at a few verses here that deal with that. So you can see why we say that this this letter is all about the coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They tell us Paul was only there at that church for maybe three weeks, possibly three months. And already at that church, he's got them waiting, ready and waiting for the Lord to come. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing. Paul's talking about himself. He's talking about when the when the Lord Jesus sees the Thessalonians there, Paul's going to be beaming with pride. They're like his children. Chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Increase and abound in love, the supreme ethic of the Christian established your hearts established blameless in holiness chapter 4 verse 17 then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When we get into chapter 4, we're going to be talking about a subject called the rapture of the church. Of a snatching away suddenly, quickly. And we've been waiting for it for a long time, right? But please don't worry, don't worry. You're in good company. Spurgeon waited for it. Chuck Smith waited for it. We're waiting for it. It's going to happen in his time. And when it does, it's just going to be radical to be snatched up and caught and always be with the Lord from that point forward. Then chapter 5, verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the, what's that say guys? Coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. That's uh, five times he's mentioned it. Let's turn to chapter six. Okay. Turn to chapter six. What's wrong? Oh, there is no chapter 6. Every chapter ends with Paul letting the people know that Jesus is coming back. People often ask why at Calvary we spend so much time and, and energy studying prophecy. Two reasons. One third of the Bible is prophetic, so you inevitably encounter a great deal of prosophy, prophecy as you journey through the word. And secondly, we study prophecy because the present times and seasons point to the coming of Christ. Just think about what we're experiencing now. And this is something that I wish all Christians would get into in looking at what is happening in our world, in the streets, in cities all across the nation, in hospitals all across the nation, and would see it through the lens of Scripture in the last days there will be perilous times, what Paul told Timothy. There will be perilous times. And the love of many will grow cold. And lawlessness will abound. Does that describe anything that you're seeing? Okay. And if this is not it, how bad is it going to have to get before it is? 
So we study prophecy because the present times and seasons point to the coming of Christ. The truth of our Lord's imminent return encourages us to keep clean, number one. That means he who has this hope within him, John says, purifies himself even as he is pure. It should have a purifying effect upon you. I remember that, you know, when I was a teenager about Isabella's age, that I would hang out at home all by myself while my parents were at work, and I was getting myself into all kinds of trouble. Only if they were there, I would be in trouble. You know what I'm talking about, Isabella? You know what I'm talking about. And then I would hear the tires crackle in the driveway, and that was a sign, my parents are coming. And then all of a sudden, I'd purify myself, right? He's coming. Having that hope within you should be purifying your life. Secondly, it should encourage you to do faithfully whatever work he's assigned to you. You all have a ministry. We all have a ministry. Every single one of us. You look through the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament, and you've got at least one, if not more. If you look at chapter Ephesians, he says, we are his workmanship for the purpose of what? Good works. And what did James say? You have faith without works? Let me show you my faith by my works. In other words, I've got faith that works. Unfortunately, many of our Christians today think that since they raised their hand in a service, since they made a profession of faith, but yet there's been no transformation of their character, there are no works in their life, that they are living more for themselves than they are for the Lord, that they're cool with God. And God says that isn't, that isn't right. So the truth of our Lord's imminent return encourages us to keep clean and to do faithfully whatever he has assigned for us to do. It also encourages us to attend church and love the brethren. In Hebrews 10.25, the writer says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. You know, um, I don't get it. Um, churches... Um, when, what I'm afraid of, let me, let me say it this way, is that when finally the coronavirus is done and gone and we don't have to worry about it anymore and we've already adjusted to a new normal. Don't you hate that, that, that phrase? You feel like slapping people when they say, it's the new normal. Yeah, well, I'm afraid people are going to say, you know what, I kind of like having church at home. You know, uh, when it gets boring, I can get up and go to the fridge, make a sandwich. <laughs> and you'll forsake the assembling. And you know what happens when you forsake assembling when you actually can assemble? You grow cold. You grow cold and you will fall away. In the old days when they had barbecues that you had to put briquettes in, you remember those? And then you put half a gallon of lighter fluid on it and you light it up, it, small mushroom cloud comes out of it and it's still not lit. <clears throat> well, when you get all those coals together and burning, they're hot and they can cook food. 
but you take one coal away from the group, and what happens to that coal? It gets cold. It dies out. But the coals that are together stay warm with one another. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And knowing that we will be with the Lord strengthens us in the difficulties of life. When I went to that concert, I was at a very low point. It's around about the time when I was thinking of suicide. And it just reminded me that there is life. This life is worth living. He is coming again. All right. Um, I think it was um, <clears throat> Warren Wiersbe that said, many believers have such a comfortable situation here on earth that they rarely think about going to heaven and meeting the Lord. They forget they must one day stand at the judgment seat of Christ. It helps to hold us up and build us up when we recall that Jesus is coming again. All right. So that is the overall theme of the book, okay? His second coming. And by the way, this, this letter is a cool letter because this is the, about one of the only churches that Paul doesn't have something bad to say to them, to correct them in something. This is a cool church. This church has got it going on. So let's meet the Thessalonians, shall we? Um, a liberal philosopher named Reinhold, I think it's Niba or Neba, I don't know. The church is a lot like Noah's Ark, he said. If it weren't for the storm outside, you couldn't stand the stink inside. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Well, he never met the Thessalonians. He has never met Calvary Chapel Arrowhead, for that matter. As MacArthur, John MacArthur said about the Thessalonians, this is a church to celebrate, doesn't it? What is it? What's the biggest excuse people use? They don't want to go to church. It's full of hypocrites, right? In which we say, hey, no problem. We've got room for one more, right? Come on down. It's uh, full of fakes and phonies and on and on and on. And some churches are like that. Sometimes church gets like that. I praise God that we have never had to face any kind of division in our church in the 12 years that I have been here. But I have seen it, and I have heard of it. I mean, even to the point where the police are called in to break up a small riot that's going on in a church where people are throwing hymnals and fists at one another over issues. Um, I imagine that would have been a sight to see, but that's a sad sight to see. Uh, the, the magistrate that finally got the fighting factions together in his office says, you know what, I'm, I'm Jewish, and I don't know much about your Jesus, but something tells me he wouldn't behave this way. That's the stink that a lot of people see in the church. But not this church. And not the church in Thessalonica. It's a church to celebrate. There's no stench. Only the perfumed fragrance of Christ. In the midst of a very foul-smelling city. Thessalonica. Is there a picture of that behind me now? You see where it is on the map? Okay. That's Greece. Keep going um, west from there, you'll end up in Europe, Italy. Um, 
Thessalonica was a commercial center and it was a thriving economic flourishing trade center. It was located at the very center of what they called the Thermaic Gulf, which gave it a strategic port. And running right through the middle of it was a main highway going from east to west known as the Ignatian Highway. And that was the major trade route. So it was at a crossroads. So it was a very profitable place. It was the most populous city in Asia Minor. It had about 200,000 people. That was big for back then. Here in the United States, 200,000 people was sort of a medium, low, medium-sized city. It was diverse community, uh, very many languages were spoken, but Greek was the dominant, the dominant language. It was founded about 316 AD. Don't forget that, Isabella, it's gonna be on the test. 350 years before Paul got there. It's founded by a guy named Cassander, who at the time was the king of Macedonia. And it was named after his wife, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Okay, then, Claudius, do you see the picture of Claudius up there? He became the Roman emperor, and they said that this guy was crazy as a loon, all right? He had issues. Uh, one, one commentator said that he was a slobbering, stuttering, crazy man. Um, Dave Guzik, he had taken the throne because Gaius had been murdered. That was the emperor before him. Though he was not really the most fit, but in spite of that, he was able to accommodate the Roman world with a peaceful period of time, and it was during that peaceful period of time that the ministry could occur in Thessalonica. That's why I gave you all that little history background. I know it bored you half to death, but the truth is, there are point in times in history that God allows there to be peace that his church may be built up and strengthened. Now, it does get strengthened during persecution. Persecution is good for the church. But after a while, you need a break. And God knows. He knows when to test his church, and he knows when to rest his church. And the same thing goes for you guys. Are you in a trial? Are you being tested? Well, there's a rest coming. Like back when you were in kindergarten, and you got to take a, a nap right after lunch. Remember that? Maybe you didn't want to take it then, but you do now, right? We also know from studying history that the city was a mixture of wealthy people, a small middle class of farmers and craftsmen, and then a large majority of slaves, and the mood in the city was tense. Archaeology has told us that in many of the homes that they built in that city, there were no windows in the home because they were fearful of thieves. Murder was commonplace. They didn't know how to abort babies in those days, but they did want to get rid of them. So they would abandon them all over the city, particularly in Agoras, which is like a, a shopping mall back in the day. And they would leave them out and to die of exposure or to be taken up by a, a human trafficker or perhaps even an animal would come and prey upon them. Divorce was frequent, immorality was rampant, prostitution was highly organized, 
there were obscene pictures painted all over the walls of buildings and all over the houses, all over the city. Sound familiar, guys? Then John MacArthur says, and in this sea of paganism was this little island to the glory of God, the Thessalonian church. This little beacon of light set on a hill. How many of us would move out of that city? I'd go, unless God told me I had to stay. I would leave. But Romans 5.20 tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. I was part of the, the Jesus movement back in the 60s and the 70s. And it always astonished me that in California, of all places, there was such a strong revival. People coming to Christ, being transformed in California, right? Heard someone say today, can anything good come from California? Right? Just remember, guys, where sin abounds, grace abounds much, much more. All right, let's talk about the way the church was founded. Look at Acts chapter 16. Paul and his buddy Silas and, his, uh, and Timothy, his protege, were on their second journey to look at the churches that were established in the first journey. Paul's an apostle. Apostle means a sent one. And what was he sent to do? He was sent both to convert people by sharing the gospel and then establish a church. And his method was is to find the big metropolitan cities to establish churches there so that the people in that city would take it out into the highways and the byways and into the smaller cities. He didn't just make converts. He started churches. And he taught and he trained and he discipled. He appointed deacons and elders and pastors and he equipped them to do the work of the ministry. And he did all of this without having the book that you guys have the privilege of holding in your lap, the Bible. But out of those things came the Bible. So now we know what he was teaching them. We know what it was that he was doing to establish a church. He had just passed through Philippi in chapter 16. And there a slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met them and uh, began following Paul around, saying these are servants of the Most High God. And you think that he'd appreciate free advertisement, right? Especially by someone who is making so much money to, for her masters by fortune telling, but that's not the way it worked because Paul got fed up with it, turned around and cast the demon out of her, and they lost the ability to tell fortunes, and you know what happens when People get mean when you mess with their green, right? They lost the money, and so then they uh, put Paul and Silas up in charges and found themselves beat and thrown into a jail. Um, verse 22 of chapter 16, if you just pop over there real quick, it tells you what happened to Paul. 
multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. They were stripped naked in front of everybody in the town square, and they beat them with rods. These were lictor rods. You ever heard of lictor rods? They were sort of like a bamboo type of thing, but at the top of it, um, tied in there were, were pieces of metal so that they would beat their backs and it would cause them to be lacerated. All right? And verse 23, when they laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And of course, that meant to the jailer that if I don't keep them securely and they get out, I die. I forfeit my life. That's the way it worked back in the day. And what did Paul and Silas do, right? They're, they're stripped, they're beaten, and they begin singing praise. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy loving kindness, right? Everybody else in the jail was telling them to shut up. And they, they hollered out, what are you going to do? Beat us? <laughs> then there was an earthquake, and then this is where Elvis Presley got inspired for his song, Jailhouse Rock because the earthquake rocked the doors open and they were able to walk out. And that's what would have killed the jailer, but it didn't happen because Paul made sure everybody stayed in their cells and the jailer did what we all wish people would do, grabbed Paul by the ankles and said, what must I do to be saved? Don't you wish witnessing was always that easy? <laughs> The jailer was converted, he ministered to Paul and Silas, and then the officials, realizing these were Roman citizens that they had just done this to, begged them to get out of town. I beg you please, and so they did. And they took a hundred mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. That's like walking from Phoenix to Tucson. It's a hundred miles. Can you imagine walking to Tucson? took them about five days and you're walking with your back all beat up and you get there and in chapter 17 verse 1 and remember we're talking about the founding of a church here when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia those were small towns they came to Thessalonica a big town where there was a synagogue of the Jews now, Paul, remember, he had a commission. His commission was sort of like ours, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, right? He was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But when he got into a city, he would start his ministry among the Jews. He would find a local synagogue where the Old Testament law was known and revered, He'd get a sympathetic hearing there, and he could at least get a few minutes of speaking before they would try to shut him up. And there would always be Gentile God-fearers. You know what a God-fearer is? That's someone who was a Gentile but wanted to turn his life over to God and accept and embrace Judaism. So... There are always Gentile God-fearers in the synagogues, and through them, Paul would begin a witness to the pagan Gentiles, and that would inevitably lead to the establishment of a church. Look at verse 2. Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. 
explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. All right, check these words out. First of all, verse 2, it says, he reasoned with them, right? As his custom was, he went to them and reasoned. That means to have a dialogue, a discourse, a question and answer. It means to take part in a conversation or discussion to resolve a problem. Did they have a problem? Yeah, they had a problem they didn't even know about. You're lost. And you're believing in the wrong path to salvation. Let me show you what I mean. And of course there would be questions, right? Verse 3, Paul, opening and alleging that Christ must need have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ, the anointed one. Now that word opening means to explain. Paul would read a portion of the Old Testament scriptures and then explain its meaning with reference to Jesus and the gospel. The word alleging literally means to lay beside. So Paul would take the scriptures before them in an orderly manner, lay them on one side, and then on the other side, show them, see how Jesus fits that scripture right there? See, this is what happened to Jesus. This was his life, right? Psalm 22. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like a crucifixion. Oh, see Jesus? He was crucified. How about when Abraham took the, the ram up to be sacrificed? Actually, his son to be sacrificed, right? And Jesus and God said, I will provide myself a lamb, right? Well, see Jesus? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And after reasoning with them, alleging with them, explaining, he would preach to them. It means he would proclaim and announce and urge his listeners to receive Christ by faith, which is what we've been doing now for how many years? Thousands of years. Same way people come to God. The key to opening scriptures is always to look for, talk about, and focus on the person of Christ. Are you taking notes? This is a great one if you want to know how to witness. Look for, talk about, and focus on the person of Christ. Whether you're sharing with children, talking to a neighbor, or teaching a Bible study, the key to opening a person's heart is to look not for principles of parenting or methods of marital communication, but for Jesus. Our faith is not in philosophy. It's not in principles. It's in a person. Warren Wiersbe again says, you will be a wonderful Bible student and an excellent Bible teacher if you learn this simple lesson, talk about Jesus. Look for Jesus. He is the key to opening scripture. So Apostle Paul there is setting before 
this group of people from whom is going to establish a church in Thessalonica. He's setting before them one Old Testament proof after another that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Okay. What does Peter tell us? He tells us, well, at first he tells Timothy, uh, Paul told Timothy, right, to study, to show yourself approved, right? But also says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. That answer has to be scriptural, and it has to point to Jesus. He's the one that can save, not your emotional experience. Not how God saved your marriage or didn't save your marriage. Not how God saved you from a car wreck or not from a car wreck. It has to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. Why is he God? Why do you believe that he is God? Why is he the only way? It's what he said, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Isn't that exclusive? Isn't it exclusive? And that gets you back on your heels sometimes if you haven't studied the Word of God and don't understand. Can any of you point to me a religion that is not exclusive? Any religion. Even naturalism, which is not a religion at all. That rejects all religions. It's exclusive. Buddhism, exclusive. It's a philosophy. It's not even a religion. Hinduism rejects Buddhism. Buddhism rejects things in Hinduism. The closest thing to the all-inclusive religion is Baha'ism. And they include everybody except the exclusivists. Every religion is exclusive. But you need to study to understand why. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All right. Um, I think we're going to end there. And I'll pick this up next week. We'll finish it, okay? The thing about what I just shared with you is that you can learn a lot from Paul in his approach to evangelism. And by the way, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Does that, um, does that please anybody here? Anybody happy about that? No. Thinking about he's going to return. A lot of people believe that Jesus is coming back and they're excited about it and they will go to prophecy conferences and they will watch the news and they'll get on the websites that deal with this but you don't see the holiness in their life and you don't see the service that we should be rendering our Savior while we're waiting. What did Jesus say? Occupy till I come. That means be busy about the work of the kingdom until he comes again. That is something that we, we need to do. And one of those things is evangelism. 
We can learn a lot from Paul. He used the word of God. He declared the son of God. He started where the people were and he led them into the truth of the gospel. And that's always what you do. Um, when Paul preached to the Gentiles, he started with the God of creation. Since they didn't have any Jewish background and he couldn't use the Old Testament, they wouldn't understand it. It doesn't make sense. So then he would go to what they did understand. And he would acknowledge the things that they said which were sort of true or leading to the truth. And then he would always lead them to Jesus Christ. All right. Let's all stand. <clears throat>